Um, if you want to turn, please, to Romans 12. We're just going to be looking at one verse, actually. Uh, Romans 12, verse 2. It's a meaty verse. And when, um, when Jeff um, asked me if I would be happy to um, do the sermon this evening, um, the will of God and uh, you know, God's will for all of our lives, but my life as well, it's, it's something which is a constant um, burden sometimes. Uh, what do I do and how do I live um, for the Christian and for the non-Christian? Uh, we all want to know how to live good lives and to be fulfilled in our life, but actually for us it's it's different. Being a Christian is living a different way. Um, so Romans 12, verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So we need God's will because we are called to live according to God's will for our lives. As Christians, we don't sign up to live our own way. God sent his son to die for us. Jesus has come and he's paid the sacrifice which we all deserve to pay, death on the cross for our sins. He died for us. We now have to put ourselves to death for him and we have to live according to how he wants us to live. We're his servants and We've not been called to serve ourselves. Um, But how do we find out what that is? Um, We can no longer look to ourselves necessarily to work out um, how to do that. We have to look to God and how God reveals that to us. Very importantly, the world sees us as a church and um, there is something different about us and uh, lots of people can't put their finger on it, but we are called to be different. And uh, T.J. Betts, in his book, um, says the reputation of God's people is closely linked to the reputation of God. So how people view Christians, actually, is how they view God. And isn't that an incredible burden for us to carry, to live in a way which is righteous and honouring God in that? How can we put him at the centre of our decisions and our waiting But actually, um, be transformed. Be transformed is an imperative command. It's not do it if you feel like, it's be transformed. So when Paul is writing to this church in Rome, he's not saying, it's okay, do this if you like. This is a command. And so as scripture, it's now a command to us as well. Be transformed. When we don't seek God's will in this way, we sin. It's a direct disobedience of his commands. When there's sin, there's always loss. And when we don't follow in God's will for our lives, we lose out. Not only us, but our friends, our family, our communities, our church, we all lose out in a certain way. Um, Because God takes his will very seriously. And you can find so many examples throughout the Bible of of the people, the people of Israel, God's chosen people, not following God's will. And the trouble that they get themselves into. But one example I just want to draw your attention to is from Joshua. In Joshua 6 and 7, we see the account of um, the conquering of Jericho, the city of Jericho. 
Uh, hopefully, many of you will know the story. Uh, they wander around the city, and on the seventh day, they wander around seven times. They shout, they blow the trumpets. The walls come down. God's command in this was go into the city, um, sack the city. Everything in that city of worth is to be devoted to God. But there is this guy called Akan. He goes into the city, and as part of the army, he sees a cloak that he likes. It's a coat. And a bit of money, he thought, okay, it's not that big a deal. I'll take it, and I'll just hide it in my tent, and I'll take it. But the very next battle, they survey the land, they go to AI next, and um, the scouts come back and say, you're not going to need many people for this. Um, So they send a like a a smaller version of their army of hundreds of thousands. They send just a couple of thousand people. And they're defeated by these people. And it's because God's will was not carried out and he didn't bless them in their going into battle. They find out that Achan was the culprit. So not only do his fellow Israelites die in this situation, but he and his family and all of his estate is given capital punishment. And that might seem severe to us, but that is how seriously God takes his will. Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 12, 26. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. That is us. We are the church. So God's will is uh, elusive sometimes. And... Um, I think we can, we can look at God's will in three different ways. Uh, I think there are three elements uh, to God's will. The first is God's sovereign will, what we might call his decretive will, his decrees. You think of a king making a decree over the kingdom. It's the king's prerogative, and what he says shall be obeyed. There is no question. And if you don't, then that is um, up to you. However, God's sovereign will is totally his Because he is perfect in his nature, and because he is all-powerful, all-knowledgeable, all-wise, his sovereign, decretive will goes. That is his will for now and for the future, for all time. When he created the earth, he knew what was going to happen from start to finish, and his sovereign will is calling the shots the whole way through. Unfortunately for us, we are not part of that sovereign will. That is not something that we have access to. Job, um, in his battle with the affliction that he's given um, from Satan at God's permission, has been battling God and has been throwing out uh, words of lament and has been crying out for his condition. But he's, he has his butt kicked by God, basically. And uh, God says, look, I understand you've... Um, You've had a hard time, but who are you to say these things? And Job, in his humility, comes back and he says, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. And Deuteronomy 29, 29 says, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, But the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of his law. So there has to be a difference between God's secret and his revealed will. So that is the difference between his sovereign. 
But we want to know it. We want to know that we're going to be healthy. We want to know that our kids are going to be believers. We want to know whether we're going to make a bit of money. But we can't. And it's such a frustration. But people still try and seek this other will which God has decreed for our lives. um, And they get themselves into all, all sorts of trouble. And the problem is that people try and disengage themselves from reality. They try to disengage their minds. They don't use the reason and the revelation that God has given to us. They try and transcend our human limitations of knowledge and by tapping into some divine thing. And um, we see this in all sorts of um, paganism. You know, you see fortune telling. We have this transcendental meditation, which lots of people are going on about these days, emptying your mind and accessing the divine somehow, and um, that's, you know, that is, that is real and that is alive right now. And um, that meditation is not what Christians do. Christian meditation is actually filling your mind, filling your mind with scripture. Some people turn to drugs, and some people turn to hallucinogenics, and they try and have an outer body different state of consciousness experience and they try and find out what the purpose is for their lives. But again, it's looking outside of themselves. But actually, when we look at the way that we try and search for God's will, how many of you and myself have tried to make a decision about something, have gone about a series of you know, wanderings, like, what am I going to do in this situation? And actually you try something And you think, actually, I feel really at peace about this. I feel a sense of peace. The signs pointed in that direction. I felt led in that way. But how often do we circumvent searching for God's will for that situation? Something beyond our own thoughts and our own reasoning and beyond what what the Bible says. We actually disengage our minds. It's no different to searching for answers from tarot cards and tea leaves if we're not thinking about it properly and we're not seeking God's will. We're entering into that disengagement of our minds. God is actually not concerned too much about our peace and decision-making. Not always. Have you ever tried to confront someone about their sin? Or have you tried to stand up for yourself and your Christian faith in the workplace, there's nothing peaceful about that. There is nothing peaceful about that. But that's God's will. By themselves, these things are put into that pagan way of trying to work out what God wants for us. So that's God's sovereign will. The second, the second type is his preceptive will. And that's preceptive, as in precepts, God's commands, um, And this is what God has revealed to us in his law, in the Bible. This is, I would put Romans 12.2 under this category. It's what God has told us that we should be doing. We have the moral power to do these things. And we have the moral power not to do these things. We have no right not to do these things as Christians. But we do have the free will to make those decisions ourselves. The Ten Commandments are probably the best, probably the most famous example of God. God's preceptive will. You shall not steal. You shall honor your father and mother. This is God's will for your life. And then there is God's will of disposition. And his, so his will of his character. And this is essentially what pleases God. This is what makes him pleased. 
And although that might be a funny concept, um, I'll try and help us through it. Um, R.C. Sproul, he uses 2 Peter 3, uh, verse 9, which is God's, is God's will is that none should perish. So how can we look at what type of will that is? Because if that's God's sovereign will, if it's God's will, his sovereign will, that none should perish, then no one will perish. But we know that's not true because we know that there are some who are already condemned. So it can't be that. Now, if it, is it his perceptive will that none should perish? Well, actually, we don't have any say in who goes to heaven and who doesn't perhaps other than in ourselves, and that is debatable in itself. But that doesn't really fit the context of the verse. It doesn't really fit the context of what Paul is saying either. Sorry, what Peter is saying. However, if we say, and I quote from Marcia Sproul now from his blog, God does not take pleasure in the death of the wicked, nor in anyone perishing. God can decree what he does not enjoy. And imagine a judge sentencing a criminal to prison. He may, inwardly, he may inwardly grieve to see the man lose his freedom, spend time in prison. His disposition might be for the man, but it's against the crime. His disposition and his character is for the man, but against the crime. So in his judgment, he has to exercise what he does not enjoy. So that's what we mean by God's disposition of will. So if we spend our lives seeking God's sovereign will, we're chasing what we can't attain. It's not only futile, but it's an affront to God. We're basically saying, Lord, your words and your will and what you've revealed to me is not enough. I need more. But we miss out on God's blessing for us. And it's, a, it's simple. And I've got four steps. I've got four steps to working out what that looks like. So the question still stands. How can I know that I'm living according to God's will? It's a, it's a, a very valid question. Um, making decisions in the wrong way will not always lead to bad decisions. Sometimes we'll get lucky and sometimes we'll accidentally live according to God's will. But by doing that, there's a chance that accidentally we will live not according to his will. But I would argue that there is a way to know and it's how much better it is to know we're living according to God's will. So how do we find it? Well, Romans 12, 2. Let me go back. By the transformation and the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God. Now, a friend said to me once, um, your faith is very intellectual. Uh, or he might have used the word academic, actually. Um, and he said that my faith is more spiritual I find that I feel led by the Spirit more. So, I, you know, what he was actually trying to say to me is, and um, we were having a discussion about some biblical issue, and I was giving the biblical reasons, and he was kind of saying, yeah, okay, but the Bible might say that, but actually I feel like God is saying that that's probably, we can, we can do something a bit different in our new modern context. But um, he's disengaging his mind disengaging his mind from what God has revealed through the word. Christianity is actually a very reasonable and it's actually a very rational religion. We have a set of instructions uh, of how to live our lives 
And the scripture is very comprehensive. Uh, there is nothing, there is nothing that you can encounter that the scripture doesn't have something to say on. Unfortunately, our feelings deceive us. Um, and the signs of the world deceive us because uh, the world is ruled by the deceiver right now. And until that world is finally taken and that kingdom has fully come, we will be deceived if we trust in anything else but in God. But most importantly, we must act. We can't do nothing. By doing nothing and just making our way through lives, we are in danger of actually just going, doing nothing. How can we faithfully serve God if we don't know what he has asked us to do or what he's pleased by? NIV um, translates uh, part of that verse, do not conform to the pattern of this world. Um, And when Paul is writing the pattern of this world, um, actually the the word means more like a mold. You can imagine like Play-Doh going into a plastic mold. You push the Play-Doh in. The Play-Doh comes out looking like what the mold is. And that's what it's trying to tell us not to do. Don't be the Play-Doh and push yourself into the mold of the world. That's what's going to get us in trouble. So the four steps which I think are going to take us on our track to living according to God's will. The first thing is to think biblically. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. So what do we feed our minds with? Do we feed our minds with the spirit of God or do we fill our minds with the spirits of the world, the spirit of the age? Paul sees this very problem when he's writing to Colossians. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. And again, to the Corinthians, we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. The spirit of the world is everywhere. We live in the world. We are are surrounded by the spirit of the world. It's in education. We send our kids to secular schools. They spend lots of hours in in an environment which is not necessarily being taught according to the biblical teachings. Just as a very rough calculation, if you spent year one to year 13, every day in school you'd be spending just over 16,000 hours of your formative life in school, potentially in an environment where you're being taught morals and worldviews which are incompatible with the Christian view. It's in media, it's in TV, it's in films, it's in our news. Um, Everything that we see is antithetical these days. Not everything, but I would argue the majority. Yeah, you can only look as far as, um, you know, look at the film Ocean's Eleven. It's a film which glorifies theft. And I'm not trying to, you know, I'm not trying to browbeat. Um, By all means, watch these films, but we need to be aware The spirit of the world is everywhere. The spirit of the world is trying to infiltrate our lives and that is the biggest trap that we can fall into, that the enemy is trying to fool us by. It's in our psychology. The spirit of the world teaches us to fix our problems by ourselves, to use self-help and to find the solution within rather than finding the solution with God. 
And I don't think it's true for this church, but the spirit of the world is in our churches. We have churches these days who are teaching doctrines completely antithetical to the Bible, things that do not agree with what the Bible teaches. I don't know whether you saw on Friday the Church of England released a statement to say that they're going to, from in the next few weeks, I suppose, they're going to start blessing same-sex marriages. They're going to start blessing a sinful union. It could be the, just the first step to marrying same-sex people. Now, hot topic, we're not going to go into that too much, but the church and the Church of England no less, is making those types of decisions influenced by the spirits of the world. So how can I tell the difference between the spirit of the world and the spirit of God? Well, we have the scriptures. Uh, Jeff gave us this morning um, a little nudge to read the scriptures. Uh, this is going to be a bit more of a gentle shove. <laughs> um, so how does the Christian find the will of God? The answer is with an open Bible. This is it. This is what we have. This is everything we need. We must swim in the word. We must saturate ourselves in the word of God. Meditate on it day and night. And we must sing it over ourselves. There are endless ways in which we can bathe in the word of God. But that is what we must do. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God. And what does testing mean in this context? Well, I'm sure you've heard before, but I'll tell you again the analogy of the bank teller. They, um, so that bank tellers can identify fake or counterfeit notes, they don't show them a fake or counterfeit note and search for the details of why it might be fake. They show them the real thing so that they know the real thing so well the intricate details, the tiny little words, they know the real thing so well that when they see a counterfeit, they know it straight away. And that is how we can live with the Bible. If we can know the Bible so well that if someone tries to persuade us with an argument that doesn't fit what we know, it repels us. We, we just think, no, that can't be right because I know what is correct. Now, there's a wonderful passage. Uh, it's one of my absolute favorite passages in 2 Timothy chapter 3, and I'm going to read 14 to 17. But as for you, Timothy, from Paul, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which were able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Do you believe that the scripture is sufficient for all the good works you could ever do? For all of them. All of the good works that you can do. All of the good works that you could never do. All of the good works that have ever been done in the history of time, ever, the scripture is sufficient. And as God's inspired and God-breathed words, <clears throat> the Bible holds authority over our lives. When we read the Bible and allow it to soak into our innermost being, 
We are transformed into the likeness of Jesus, who is the eternal word. Sorry. And this is what Paul means by the renewal of our minds. Actually, our minds and our heart is all linked. And as we allow the word to be imprinted on our hearts, we allow our minds to be thinking and our outputs from our hands and from our actions, our words, to be soaked in God's word. The Bible is actually like, it's like the center of a wheel. It's like the hub of a wheel. And you've got all these spokes coming out of it. You've got your job, you've got your church, you've got your family, you've got all the doctrines. It's all held together in the middle of the wheel by the Bible. Without it, everything falls apart. The wheel collapses, the spokes go everywhere. Without the Bible, our faith collapses. There is nothing without the word. Now the spirit of the world will never stop, and so we must never stop. We must never stop reading and learning what God's will is revealed through his word. Now the third step is to pray, but to pray biblically. And you might say, what, well, isn't prayer biblical? Uh, well, yes, it is, but what about, Lord, make me wealthy, and Lord, make me healthy, and Lord, make my life comfortable, please? Maybe. Are those prayers biblical? Well, I guess it depends, actually. Now, Tim Keller has a wonderful book on prayer called Prayer. (laughs) Um, And he says, he has this concept, and he says that we speak only to the degree in which we're spoken to. And actually, prayer is a conversation with God. It's the way we speak to God. And he gives an analogy of a child from birth, growing up, spending time with their mum and dad, they only learn to speak because their mum and dad speak to them. The words that we learn, we learn from those who speak to us. And that's what it's like with God. We learn to speak to God by the words that he has for us. God has always been in communication. Even before there was any creation, he was in communication with his triune self. He is a God of communication. And as we are created in his image, we are to be in conversation with him. And I'm quoting directly from Tim Keller's book now. We should plunge ourselves into the sea of God's language, the Bible. We should listen, study, think, reflect, and ponder the scriptures until there is an answering response in our hearts and minds. It may be one of shame, joy, confusion, or appeal, But that response to God's speech is then truly prayer and it should be given to God. So prayer is not from ourselves, it's from God. It always starts with God. God speaks, he speaks first. Whatever we say is in response. If we start with ourselves, what we actually do is we start to project who we think God is, and we start praying to actually what we are projecting God to be. And we begin to realize, actually, that this projection of God just wants exactly the same things that we do. And isn't that great? But actually, that's not true. God does not want the same things that our earthly bodies want. Wouldn't it be great if we could all go around lifting stuff from shops and sleeping with whoever we want, but that's not, that's not how we should be living our lives. Our desires are contrary to God's, and in that transformation of our mind, we need to be ever seeking God's will more and more. 
Our right response to God, um, actually when we read his word, is awe and wonder. But does this mean that we shouldn't pray for other things, actually? Um, well, no, because he, he asks us. He asks us to pray for things as well. And there are numerous examples of brilliant prayers in the Bible. Uh, you have Nehemiah's uh, wonderful prayer of mourning when he hears about Jerusalem. You have Moses' intercession numerous times for the Israelites. You have David's myriad of prayers in the Psalms. You have Paul's prayers to the new churches. But the most famous prayer in the Bible, you probably guess, is the Lord's Prayer. But in the Lord's Prayer, we only get to, Lord, give us this day our daily bread. Once we've spent time thinking about God and his awesomeness, by glorifying and magnifying him, our Father in heaven, hallowed, holy is your name. That's the first thing that we should be thinking about. And as we, we sometimes say the Lord's Prayer by right, don't we? By, by rote. Uh, we just say it because we know it. But actually, when we think about it, the first part of the Lord's Prayer is, God, you are holy. And actually, our Protestant ending is, to you be the power, the glory, forever and ever. Again, we start and end with the glory of God. Only after we've got to that point do we ask God for our daily bread. So when we pray, do our prayers fit the model of the Lord's Prayer? If we ask, Lord, make me wealthy and rich, as this person over here may be, maybe we're just comparing ourselves. We don't want loads, but we want to be as rich as them. Does that fit? Lord, give me today my daily bread. Proverbs 30 says, give me neither poverty nor riches. Neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is my portion. It's only what we need. And St. Augustine, in a letter about prayer, writes, <clears throat> what about when we're in a bad situation and we ask God to take us out of that bad situation? I'm paraphrasing, by the way. Well, we look to Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. He prays for the cup to be taken away, the cup of God's wrath. Please take it away from me if there is any other way. But Lord, your will be done. So Jesus himself prays that he can go some other route. But Lord, your will be done. Prayer is essential to discerning God's will. And through the Spirit, God will lead us and show us his revealed will for us and in our decisions. But prayer is inseparable from reading the Bible and we must pray biblically in response to God. Now the fourth step, the final step, is to consult older and wiser Christians. There is always going to be someone older and wiser than you are. Even you, David. <laughs> I know. We get our help from our parents when we're young. They teach us how to live. And it's the same when we become Christians. Hopefully we have a good network of people around us who can teach us. But as we become slightly mature, as we start to go out on, us, on our own, we need to have that good basis for knowing how to live our lives. When I moved out of home, I thought I was done with having my mum telling me what to do and how to live. And I realised that when I got married, I just substituted my mum for someone else. Um, but parents, in, in all seriousness, parents, you have a responsibility to your children. You have to train them. 
You have to show them the way to live. Proverbs 22, verse 6 says, Train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. The importance of discipling our children. Deuteronomy 6, 6 and 7. All these words that I have commanded you today shall be on your hearts. This is God speaking to Moses, having just given him the law. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise. Parents, we need to teach our children. Our children, you're not off the hook. You have to listen to your parents. Uh, but that's not it, actually. As, as children, we also have to put in a bit of work. We have to engage in the Bible ourselves. We have a little bit of work to do. We have to read and we have to start to make those steps into maturity. Christianity is not a personal religion. It's not something which is just in ourselves. It's one of a community. In Jeff's sermon this morning, he gave us some great examples from the early church about how they devoted themselves to living in community, learning from one each other, praying for one another, exhorting one another. And part of this, oh, sorry, early church. Ephesians 5, I'm sure it's a lot of people's favorite uh, passage. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Part of this mutual submission and sacrifice means making decisions together. When you're married, you can't just make decisions by yourself. There's always you and that other person. You are one spirit. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 11 to be imitators of him as he is of Christ. We always have these people to look to For the churches, these new churches, they had Paul, they had the other apostles. We have the elders, we have people who are older than us, who have a little bit more experience than us, perhaps more lived experience, but perhaps more actual experience of situations. There are many, many wise Christians, long in the tooth Christians who have been there, done that, got the t-shirt. Speak to them. Consult them. Get their thoughts on things. They probably know the Bible a lot better than you do. And they probably pray and know how to pray better than you do. Why not learn from these people? So, after these four steps, we wait. And actually, if we still are not sure or are in doubt, we repeat those steps. James 5, in this very sentiment says be patient therefore brothers until the coming of the Lord see how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth being patient about it until he receives the early and the late rain so a few things to remember just as we come into into land God is more committed to the fulfillment of his promises than you could ever be God has promised you many, many things. He may have made individual promises to you. There are many corporate promises in the Bible. He is more committed to fulfilling those promises than you are. Have you ever started something and not finished it? Have you broken a promise before? Missed a deadline. God will never do any of these things. 
He is faithful to save, but he is faithful to his promises. The Spirit guides us. And not always initially from the Bible, but this is again what Paul means by testing, that by testing you may discern. 1 Thessalonians 5, 19 to 21 says, Do not quench the Spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good. We have spiritual gifts. We're given spiritual gifts to be used and shared and to build up the body of Christ. But we're all flawed. We're all human and we all make mistakes. The one single point of truth is the word of God. And so we must test everything. Do not despise prophecy, but test everything. And then God will answer. But for you, O Lord, I do wait. It is you, O Lord, my God, who will answer. Psalm 38. Now, good decisions will not always lead us into comfortable places. The same as bad decisions will not always lead us into bad places. But that's a trap. Bad decisions leading into good places can lead us to think, oh, I don't need God. Actually, I got here by myself. And we start to make an idol of our own intellect and our own decision making. We have to trust in God. We get a great assurance by knowing that we're following God's, God's will. If we make a decision based on meters and um, discernment and, and undertaking these four steps and we find ourselves in a bad place, Actually, there is a comfort, even though we know that we're going through a bad time. We know that God has got us here. We know that we've been following God's will. If we don't, if we don't know that we've followed God's will, we can, we can lead us to resentment towards God. If we don't know whether we're supposed to be here or we're not supposed to be here, we're in a bad situation, we can shake our fists at God and say, why, why have you led me here? And why have... I ended up here. I thought I was doing the right thing. Don't get yourselves into those situations. So, think biblically. Read the Bible. Pray biblically. Consult older, wiser Christians. Live a life pleasing to God. Follow his lead. And you will be blessed. There is blessing in following God's will. Just think of the blessing that this church could experience if we all undertook thorough examinations of what we were doing and we sought God's will. Think of the growth of the church. Think of the growth of the church in Plymouth in this country. The revival that we could see if we have faithful Christians seeking God's will prayerfully and by by the words. And we do that on our knees with our Bibles open. Our view is eternal, our view is looking towards heaven, but we do have this life to live and please God in. We have lands to take possession of for his kingdom. There is much work for us to do. Deuteronomy 30, verse 16. says, if you obey the commandments of the Lord your God, I command you today, by loving the Lord your God, by walking in his ways, by keeping his commandments and in his his statutes and his rules, then you shall live and multiply and the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you are entering 
to take possession of. So that's all I've got to say on God's will. We have work to do. We have decisions to make. But actually, by following these four steps, we can't really go wrong. If we're trying to find out what socks we should wear in the morning, I think just wear the socks that come out the drawer first. That's not the type of thing that we're looking at here. This is making decisions about direction of our life. This is about jobs. This is about whether we should speak to people in a certain way. It's about our ethics. It's about our morals when we encounter people in the world. It's about that spiritual battle that is going on in our lives. So um, as can the band uh, make their way back up? I'll just I'll pray for us and um, we'll enter into a, a bit of worship to finish off. Lord, we thank you so much that you have given us the tools and you have given us the instructions, the revelation of your will through your words, that we can discern every problem, there is a solution, and we can live according to the way that you want us to. God, would you help us? Would you allow your commands, your precepts, your instructions to sit on our hearts. Maybe may we write them on the tablets of our heart. May we hang them from our foreheads and may we be dwelling on them day and night as the psalmist says. Lord, your word is sweeter than honey, finer than gold. And the more we spend time in your precious words, the more it will saturate us the more we will be able to make those decisions knowing that we are following in your will. So Lord, I ask that you would make our hearts soft, you would shape us, that we would conform to you, that we would not be tempted to conform to the invasive world which we live in. God, as we try and work out what it is, what we have in store, we make those decisions based on guidance and blessing from you. May you bless us as we follow in the ways that you want to. May we see revival. May we see that blessing overflow into our communities around us. May we see this nation, may we see this world, see the good that comes from following in the way that you have designed for us to live. We ask all these names in your precious name, Jesus. Amen.